real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Nathan Romus, and this is the final episode in the series on service as we come up to Remembrance Day. These are a number of podcasts with current police or law enforcement partners who have served in the military, and we got a bit of a focus on service, what it means and why it's important, in addition to talking with the guests about their experiences uh, in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and some of the impacts of service. So today, we are fortunate to have retired Captain Keith Cunningham on the program. He is the current COO and Chief Instructor for Milken Training Centre out of Ontario, Canada. Keith is a career military officer with a combined time of over 25 years of service with the Canadian Forces and U.S. Army. He completed a combat tour in Vietnam peacekeeping and counter-sniper operations in Cyprus, as well as several unit and command level military exercises from North America to Europe. Keith has taught marksmanship courses at the Canadian Forces Infantry School and for several police services in Ontario. And he is also a gunsmith with over 30 years of experience. He's a member of the Canadian Forces Sports Hall of Fame and the Dominion of Canada Hall of Fame and he's done a number of guest lectures and speaking engagements, as well as leading seminars and courses for police, military, and civilians. So welcome, Keith. Well, thanks very much. It's good to be here. It's good to talk about, uh, about these things. Yeah, and you know what? We've had a, a couple uh, really good guests on, and they've talked about some very interesting things. Uh, you're going to be the first one that I think has any experience in Vietnam. Um, and Cyprus. So, uh, it, and I didn't even plan it that way, but it just happened. Everybody we've had on has kind of touched on a different part of the world. So, uh, it'll be very, uh, interesting to get into. And, you know, we thank you for everything you have done and continue to do, uh, in support of, uh, police and, uh, our country. Thanks very much. I just can't imagine having done anything else. <laughs> Yeah, well, you've got some interesting uh, background here. And I mean, the bio I read, that's not even maybe 50% of what you had on there. Uh, you've got quite the accolades to your name and you've been a lot of places. So um, maybe we'll start kind of at the beginning. And can you tell us you know, where you're from and what led you to the military? Well, I grew up on a, uh, a farm on the Bruce Peninsula. <clears throat> and um, I was I was raised by my uh, my grandparents, so I didn't have any any sisters or brothers, um, and so I had to kind of spend um, the time um, figuring out how to entertain myself. And um, um, as the, as time progressed along, uh, I began to notice that there was a, a picture on the wall of my grandmother's brother, my great uncle uh, George Rogers. Um, who was in a, a military, a World War One military uniform, and um, he was killed in the, the battle of uh, in at Yeats. Mm. And um, looked at this picture a lot, and and thought I started to feel 
the, his spirit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and one day the, the picture kind of spoke to me and said, um, I'll take care of you. Um, and from about that point on, now, again, I, I was having to entertain myself. And so I had an imaginary uh, friend uh, whose name was Sarge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and he and I uh, won uh, battles nearly every day uh, that we'd be out, uh, about, out and about playing. Uh, and of course, he lasted until uh, I went to school. And back in those days, he didn't start school until he was six years old. Um, and um, and of course, he started to fade after I had uh, had school friends and whatnot. And um, then, uh, just before uh, I was ten or so, uh, my grandparents bought me a um, a twenty two rifle and the same kind of rifle that that all the neighbor boys were getting and, and whatnot, uh, an old Cooey, uh, excuse me, 22. And, uh, and once I had that, then of course I started to entertain myself by shooting groundhogs and, and, uh, um, and rabbits and, and um, any vermin that came in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of took on the job of, of kind of protecting the, uh, uh, the place from, uh, from the coyotes and wolves and, uh, and whatnot. Um, anyways, um, when I got to high school, of course, the Vietnam War was on at that time, and um, it was, as they announced, as they claim, it was one of the first wars that that was brought to you each evening in your in your living room. And I remember Walter Cronkite uh, telling you well, that's the way it was on this this date, and seeing all the uh, uh, seeing all the uh, footage that came out of there and of course <clears throat> my great uncle george was was still talking to me through through that picture and i needed to go and see what that was like um and so in uh, it was 19 i graduated out of high school in 1968 and then i moved down to the states um and lived with my uh, my my real mother um and um at the time i wanted to uh, become a um, a fighter pilot. Hmm. I was uh, quite interested in in flying, uh, but in order to do that, you needed to have a college degree. Uh, and so I went to college uh, for a year, and was absolutely bored out of my skull. <laughs> um, imagine a more boring time than I spent d- during that year. And the only thing, the only thing that uh, that saved me for that year was our uh, physics professor. Uh, was big into the Kennedy assassination, and he was using his physics uh, to prove that uh, that Oswell had nothing to do with that with that uh, assassination, and that there were other people involved. And I found this incredibly interesting to this day, and still read books on it and and, and whatnot. I don't imagine that was on the curriculum. <laughs> no, uh, if if the curriculum got the slightest bit boring, then you just simply had to ask him a question about the Kennedy assassination and. And off we go. So if we can kind of go uh, just a little bit back. So you were raised by your grandparents, but your mom was in the U.S. this entire time? Yeah. Yeah. Can you kind of just tell us a bit about her or your, your family, like why you were up here in Canada? Um, she, uh, she's Canadian. And, um, and of course, back in those days, to be a, 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 an un, unwed mother was, was considered uh, uh, kind of taboo. And mm-hmm. so the idea 
you know, she had to go off and make a living. And, uh, and, the, and so the grandparents, uh, stepped up, um, and, um, and raised me. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, did a good job. I'm, I'm quite happy with the, with the life I had, mm-hmm. in fact, would have much rather that life on the farm than, uh, than any life, uh, that I might've had with her in the city. But, uh, you know, we, we did what we had to do, uh, at the time, uh, and, um, and it all turned out just fine. So. And you're kind of, uh, it sounds like you're more of an outdoors type person. You're kind of geared toward that, especially growing up on a farm, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can't beat me hard enough to make me go into the, into the city. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, like I said, I had this 22 and I would roam around, uh, whenever I could, uh, all over the property, um, mainly shooting groundhogs because we had tons and tons of groundhogs back in those days. Um, and I remember, um, to try to feed that 22, I would go along the roadways and pick up pop bottles. And if I remember a 50, a 50 pack box of whiz bang 22s only cost about 50 cents <laughs> and, uh, get two cents for a pop bottle and so i only needed 25 or 30 pop bottles to buy another uh, 50 rounds of ammunition so uh, i always had lots of ammunition well did uh, you know did you kind of show any signs of that you wanted to go to, into the military when you were a kid or did you just kind of have this to yourself and you know in your head you're thinking this but um you know you have the picture there did your grandparents kind of push you in that direction or or know about it no, no, they, they, uh, my grandmother lost a brother in that war. And she didn't want anything to do, mm. uh, with the military or, uh, or war. Um, and of course, if, if I grew up with a, with an imaginary playmate named Sarge, you, you, you pretty well got to guess where I'm going. Yeah. Sooner or later, I'm, I'm going to go there. So, yeah. So, uh, and how were you, how were you in school? Like even in high school and stuff, you said you were bored in college, but was sitting in a class even then kind of a, a pain for you? Um, if I could be as polite as possibly, I, I am. I am not in the slightest bit scholastically inclined. <laughs> yeah. um, I tried my darndest to keep up with my homework uh, at the start of the year, um, but as soon as hunting season came around, then I'd be behind, and I'd be behind for the rest of the of the. Um, of the of the school year uh, it was a struggle i much enjoyed the the pt that we did mm-hmm. um and um, uh, and some of the science was like good and fun and some of the geography was was good uh, i had no um inclination for for french although um you know i could speak a little a little wee bit of it uh in fact learned more uh when i was uh training on the Vandu rifle team because of course they just spoke French and I was able to understand range commands and what was going on that way. But my, uh, my Latin teacher came to me, uh, one day, um, and, and the following, uh, we had to take one year of Latin and, and the following year we could drop it if we wanted to. And she came to me and said, um, do you plan to take uh, Latin next year? And I said, no, ma'am. She said, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and I ended up with, <laughs> with, with, you know, 50% or something, 51 or two, just enough to, to get me through that. So yeah, we weren't, if, if they'd have taught us ballistics, um, I'm sure I would have been much more interested in yeah. school. Well, it's, so when you get to high school and you were, you were mentioning this, so Vietnam is on TV 
and that's one of the first, uh, I guess, wars that was widely broadcast. So as things are happening or relatively recently, that's one of the first wars that's kind of getting that attention. Um, so what were your thoughts kind of around Vietnam, even at that early age? Um, I was, I constantly watched, uh, watched them and, and wondered what that was really like. Um, you'd see them interviewing some, some soldier and, and he's, and he's, you know, as low as he can possibly get. And he's acting, uh, talking like he's scared. And I'm wondering, you know, what is that? What is that really like? Uh, and could I survive it? Um, could I, could I be a soldier? Could, uh, you know, as good as my, my great uncle George, could I, could I survive it? I think was, was perhaps the whole, the whole thing. I wanted to experience it. Um, you know, I didn't have a death wish. I wanted to survive it. Uh, but I wanted to, 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 uh, know what that felt like. What did it feel like to, to be shot at? What did it feel like to, to, uh, to, um, you know, save your own life? What did it feel like to have buddies that, that, uh, you would be willing to give your life for if that's what was necessary? Uh, just all the things that, that you see in the, in the movies and you read in the books. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I think as a, probably as a young man, you want to test yourself, right? And, and some of that stuff is the ultimate test, especially when your life's on the line, but you know, around 18 through early twenties, uh, I think that's when most people probably take uh, all the risks they're going to take <laughs> and some learn from it. Some don't come through it, unfortunately, but uh, you know, that's, that's definitely you're, you're speaking the same language I would be at that age. Yeah. Uh, and some of the training was, was far harder than the actual combat was. Um, I went through the, uh, the uh, jump school in, in uh, uh, the American army as well as in the Canadian army. And I did the ranger course down in, uh, in uh, the American army. And uh, I often commented that, uh, you know, in Vietnam when we're out sneaking and peeking, um, and uh, we would go to ground, put it, put in our de our night defensive position, and go to ground as soon as it got dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would budge out of that thing until the next morning uh, when it got daylight again. And on the ranger school, you know, if we got one hour sleep a day, uh, we were <laughs> we were doing really really well. Well, I got more sleep out on on patrols uh, than I even did back in the rear because uh, there was there was things to do back in the rear mm -hmm. and. Uh, out, out in the bush as soon as it got dark then you went to ground and you just stayed there quiet listening to the radio and uh and um and sleeping so when well you said you moved to the u.s and now you're with your your mom so can you kind of walk us through what leads you up to even the application process and what that kind of looked like well as i as i mentioned uh, when i moved down there i uh, i didn't give up my canadian citizenship i was still a, a canadian um, but in order to work down there, I had to get uh, a green card. And, and in order to get that green card, I had to volunteer for uh, the draft. I had to enlist or register for the draft. Uh, and so as long as I was going to that college, um, I was not subjected to the draft at all. Uh, but as soon as I dropped out, within 30 days, um, I got a, a, a letter in the mail that said, uh, report to your nearest draft board uh, for your pre-induction medical. Um, and, um, and so I went, uh, got on a bus with a whole bunch of other guys. We met up with about 
I don't know, 2,000 or so guys uh, at a great big warehouse in Detroit. Wow. Uh, we follow, followed these uh, yellow lines around on the floor, and, you know, we, we uh, pissed in a cup here. We uh, um, coughed over there. We, you know, they just put us all through that. Um, and, of course, we were all very nervous, and so the place smelt of nervous sweat uh, the whole time. Put us on a, put us on a bus at, at, at the end of the day and took us back home. Well, uh, just, you know, a few weeks later, I got a, another letter that said, uh, report to your local draft board for your induction into the United States Armed Forces. Uh, and so we ended up being drafted. And um, I, at the time, I thought that was that was the right thing to go because uh, your minimum enlistment was three years, and but you could be drafted for two. And I thought, well, if I like it, I'll, uh, uh, I'll, I'll re-enlist, I'll re-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I don't, then I've got to spend two years in the, in the Army. So that's kind of how we got in there. And so when you're going through what, uh, I know lots of people see, I would say, what's in the movies. Uh, but was the overall, like, would you say the majority of people were against Vietnam or were a lot of people there that wanted to be there and, and maybe there was more of the public that was kind of on, uh, I'll say on the side of the soldiers, not protesting the whole thing. Well, the, the people I went through training with, um, once I got through basic and advanced, uh, individual training, uh, then I went to, uh, the um, um, NCO school and those that were at the NCO school were pretty much there because they wanted to be there. Uh, and they knew that they, they were Vietnam bound at some time or another, mm-hmm. uh, but where they wanted to be. And of course, then I went to the, the American jump school and those people were all there. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to be there because nobody went through jump school that didn't want to. Yeah. Um, they were quickly out. And then, of course, I went to the Ranger School. And, of course, now you've got people who are career-minded uh, that are getting their uh, getting their box uh, ticked uh, for, for that course uh, and uh, and definitely are Vietnam-bound now, for sure. And so those people were the ones that, uh, that were going as part of their career and wanted to be there. Uh, when we got to Vietnam, there was, uh, we called ourselves the Dirty Dozen. There were 13 of us. Uh, that had gone through uh, all of this stuff together. Uh, and when we arrived there, we had heard so much about uh, the fragging incidences and um, and how uh, a lot of junior leaders, who were the ones in the field that's actually, you know, having to, to do the actual leading, um, how they oftentimes got fragged. And, and uh, there was lots of, uh, of uh, people who, uh, that, that just didn't want to be there and weren't about to be led by this person. And, and if it meant uh, killing them in the next uh, firefight, mm-hmm. then so be it. Wow. And so we, we ourselves, we don't want to go with those groups. We want to go with, uh, with people who uh, we can trust. And so, uh, once we got there, then the, uh, we got on with the LERPs, the long range reconnaissance patrol people, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, did their course. And, um, and then I was with them, uh, for most of the time, and they were good, good, solid people. You could trust them, no matter what. And um, um, once, uh, but they eventually stood them down, and I ended up going to a reconnaissance platoon, Echo Company Reconnaissance Second of the First One Ninety Six, uh, and I continued to do the exact same job. Uh, only now I'm a, I'm, uh, the, remember that imaginary friend I had named Sarge? <laughs> yeah. Well, now I am, 
Uh, now I am one, and uh, and I'm leading this this team, uh, and uh, uh, and so continued to do uh, long range reconnaissance uh, patrols. We were out for thirty days one time, uh, and uh, that sort of stuff. So, so um, one thing I want to kind of see what your what your family thinks of all this. So when you were you get into the draft, and at what point do you tell? you know, mom and then the grandparents and what do they kind of say? Well, of course, my mother was following this all the way through. She knew right from the get go, um, that, uh, that I was going to go and, and, uh, her whole attitude was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost an adult now. Uh, if I really, if, if he really wants to do it, what can I do to keep him from doing that? You know? So she sort of accepted it. Uh, and, uh, Grandparents uh, weren't happy with it at all, but again, what could they do? Yeah, uh, this was my and uh, and I was out of their influence, and I was going. So you uh, get your letter says you're going. Uh, what what is it or what takes place after that? Well, um, of course, you you um, as you're being processed through, uh, they're asking you what would you like to do. They they want to know your your aptitudes and all this sort of stuff, your background and that sort of thing. And I said, uh, well, you know, I'm really, uh, from a, from a, um, farming background where I did all lots of hunting and, and I like shooting guns and, 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 and you could just see them smile on the other side. Oh, have we got a job for you? <laughs> uh, and so I ended, up, <laughs> I ended up in the infantry, um, <laughs> much to no one's surprise. Uh, but while I was there, I was still interested in flying, and uh, uh, and of course they had the uh, the uh, uh, warrant officer flight uh, uh, training uh, to train helicopter pilots, and I thought, well, that might be kind of fun. I'm still interested in flying, so I did all the testing, um, and eventually um, uh, was told uh, that uh, well. Um, when I was going through AIT down in Fort Polk, Louisiana, they came to me and said, you're eligible for the NCO school. Would you like to do that? And I said, well, I've got this war officer flight thing. I don't give a damn about that. Do you want this or not? <laughs> uh, and I hadn't got the back about the, the war officer flight thing. So I thought, bird in the hand, I better do this. Uh, and so uh, I, I volunteered for that. And um, I went over to the, um, uh, the the flight recruiters and told them that and they said oh we'll forward this on yeah we've done this lots of times once the results are in no problem so about three weeks into the NCO school uh, I get this great big envelope and it says uh, inside it says congratulations you have uh, been uh, successfully selected for warrant officer flight training and you go to I think it was Fort Fort Hood Texas or something like that so I go running down to my my um, company commander. And I knock on the door and he says, come in. And he was a, a short, cocky um, West Pointer from somewhere deep down in the South. And he says, come on in here, boy. What can I do for you? <laughs> and uh, I've got this paperwork here that says that I can go off and uh, learn how to fly helicopters. And I want to do that. Is that right, boy? Because I got some training to do for you. Because when you all signed up for this here at NCO school, you signed up for some OJT. Uh, OJT, sir? Yeah, boy, you ain't catching what I'm a-throwing, are you? That's on-the-job training. 
boy, your ass is Vietnam bound and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Is there anything else, boy? <laughs> uh, I said, um, uh, no, sir. Well, um, so there I was. I'm thinking, well, they want a ground pounder. That's what I'm going to give them. The best ground pounder they could possibly have. Uh, and so we went in that direction. Well, sometime later on, um, we were doing some kind of a um, um, uh, familiarization uh, with the various um, uh, areas that we could go in. And we walked into the uh, auditorium and there's a stage there that's about, you know, six feet high. And standing on top of that stage with a black ray on uh, at, a, at a cocky, I dare you to knock this off my head uh, attitude. Uh, with starch, uh, combat fatigues, and just looking every bit the, the Sergeant Rock that you can imagine stood this ranger. Um, and uh, he was what he was trying to do was get people that would be interested in going to ranger school at once they completed the NCO training. And so there was three of us that, uh, or 13 of us that uh, volunteered for that. Um, and, that's, and that's how we ended up uh, with the rangers and, and doing the ranger course. And and where we ended up. I was going to ask, what's in the NCO school? What do you do there exactly? You learn how to lead at a junior leader's level. Are you still doing all the basic training at that point? Or? Oh, no. No, no. They, they, you, you, you now know how to salute and march and, and shoot a gun. And so what they're focusing on is you leading a, a, a section. Uh, I think there was even some platoon-sized stuff um, in some sort of, of um, exercise or activity. Okay. So you get this opportunity to go to ranger school and what is that? Where does that kind of take you? Well, now you get to use that, uh, all the, all the skills that you've learned up to that point. Um, you now get to, uh, um, use all of these, uh, with people that you're not familiar with, uh, because there'd be, I don't know, 700 or so of us, uh, going, going through this school, uh, at a time. And, um, you would be uh, required to, uh, when it's your turn, you'd be required to uh, lead a section or lead a platoon uh, on whatever um, uh, exercise mission that uh, that was uh, designated. Um, and if you did a good job on your first one, you probably w wouldn't get another one. Uh, if you did a poor job, then they would run you through it two or three more times until they decided that, that you were worth keeping or uh, it was time to fail you. But it was very... It was very demanding uh, because um, uh, because that's what the, that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to run you down. They wanted to give you lots of, of time without sleep and and uh, and on the go for just just steady, steadily uh, to see what you're made out of. And um, um, there was a a twelve day exercise uh, near the end um, that um, we figured we got ten hours sleep on the whole twelve days. Uh, we were fed um, one ration a day, about 3,000 3, calories, and we were burning, you know, we're burning probably six to 12,000 uh, 12, calories a day because you were just on the go uh, steadily, you know, and you carried rucksacks and that sort of thing. So I'm guessing you, you lost any weight you had? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the chubbier ones that came in, uh, they, would, they would lose, you know, 20 to 30 pounds. Um, I think I ended up losing 10 or 12 or 15 or something like that. Uh, but we were incredibly a lot leaner at the end of that mm -hmm. uh, than we were. And how long is the ranger school? Uh, it's eight weeks. Um, it actually, I was going to say it feels like a whole lot longer than that, but it, because you're on the go so steadily, 
it, it actually felt um, it went by. The time went by fairly quickly. So, what, uh, what kind of exercises did they have you doing in these schools? Well, um, there was con- they they ran you through sort of conventional warfare, and then they ran you through jungle warfare, and then they ran you through mountain warfare. Uh, and so you were kind of doing all of all of the types of of um, activities that the rangers were were specializing in 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 all of those environments. So you're kind of a so just, a generalist, like a specialized generalist, maybe. Um, yeah, and of course they were teaching us how to call in artillery and and tanks and how to how to make use of all the support arms. Uh, we were expected to, uh, no, no matter the situation we were in, we were expected if we needed to have that that support, then we were expected to be able to know how to call all that stuff in. And of course that came in handy very, very much in, in Vietnam because, uh, uh, I was, uh, um, a buck sergeant then leading, a leading, a a reconnaissance team. And so we needed to be able to, to, uh, call on the support arms anytime we, we needed them. Mm-hmm. So where do you, what happens after ranger school? Um, after ranger school, uh, we had a month leave. And then we were all we all reported back to Fort Dix, New Jersey, uh, where we spent about a, a week or so um, uh, waiting to uh, waiting for our aircraft or, or our flight to uh, to Vietnam. And uh, of course, we were all these we we were these brand new um, uh, sergeants uh, just off the Ranger course, and we're Vietnam bound. And uh, as in all all armies, they wanted to keep us busy. And so us NCOs would be given a group of privates and we had to go off someplace and, um, um, uh, and, and rake leaves or something like that. We'd supervise them raking leaves. Well, we very quickly got tired of this and we're thinking, well, what if, what if we don't do this? <laughs> what are they going to do? Send us to Vietnam? <laughs> uh, and so we would all agree, us, us 13 NCOs, we'd all agree, okay, let's meet at the base theater for the, the 10 o'clock movie. Yeah. Okay. And so we would dismiss the, uh, the privates and we'd say, okay, you guys stay low, you know, don't, don't be seen walking around and, um, and we'll see you tomorrow morning type of thing. And so we'd go off and do that. Well, this drove the, this drove the, uh, the permanent staff there just absolutely crazy because of course they were losing control of <laughs> all of these people that they were supposed to be in control of. And so one day about a week after, um, the NCO got up in front of us all, and we had to have morning parade every morning to, because uh, they would list off those that are about to leave for Vietnam. Their flight was ready for Vietnam, and so one morning he gets in front of us and he says, "I've got the very best news I've ever had in my entire life. The following people are Vietnam bound," and he he listed us thirteen off specifically, and he says at the end he says, "And I hope you all die." <laughs> oh, okay. We were sort of hoping that, that his uh, predictions wouldn't come true, but we were on an airplane shortly after that heading for Vietnam. So you're hoping for something a little more inspirational, maybe? <laughs> Not just <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, a bit, yeah. <laughs> so what what year is this that you're going over? Um, I went in 71. I think it was March. March of seven. No, it was June. It was summertime of seventy one, and I came back in March of seventy two. Okay, so you're there in almost a year. Yeah. Well, uh, as soon as you stepped off the plane, um, your D-row date, date return overseas date, was one year from that moment. 
Mm. Um, and while I was there, they were starting to de-escalate. The Americans were trying to get out of Vietnam. Uh, and so they cut 30 days off of your D-Row state. Um, and then uh, and I was only there a few months when that happened. And then I was just there a few more months when they cut another 30 days off and another 30 days. And by the time I was there about eight months, then um, then my D-Row state was up. Can you kind of tell us like what's it like when you get there and, and then being in Vietnam? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we were um, being driven from, from the airfield to uh, our quarters. Uh, in a bus, a great big green school bus looking thing. And it had um, uh, chicken wire um, over the windows uh, because apparently in the past, uh, Viet Cong would throw hand grenades through the windows because everybody had the windows open, right? Because it was so hot there. And I suppose if I backed up just a little bit more, um, when I stepped off the airplane, um, as I was getting close to the door, uh, I could see this this bright, bright light coming in and I'm wondering what that was. And when I hit the door, the heat was so thick. It was like you had to push yourself through it. Um, and, um, uh, and it was a struggle. Uh, and you wonder, how in hell can I last this long in this kind of heat? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the thing that hit you was the smell of, uh, of human uh, shit being burned with uh, diesel fuel. So you had that diesel fuel and, and crap smell. Uh, and you're one because that's how they they dealt with the uh, the, the waste, the human waste over there. Is you crapped into a, a 45 gallon drum that was cut in half, and every day somebody had to do a shit detail, and that's where it got its name. Uh, and you had to drum out, mix it with diesel fuel, and light it on fire, and then you had to keep prodding it uh, to keep it burning until it all was to ashes, and then you could stuff the drum back in on uh, underneath the the seats in the uh, in the outhouse. Wow, uh, and so that was that's how I remember arriving uh, in Vietnam, which was those that heat and that smell. Um, so once we got our gear, then we got on this bus, and uh, and it had these uh, chicken wire over the windows to keep grenades from coming in, and it sort it started to, it it gave you a bit of a rude awakening. This is not an exercise anymore. Uh, people have died because they didn't have that uh, chicken wire over the window, uh, and so. Uh, we started thinking that we want to get with the uh, with the uh, professional people. We don't want to go with the what we call line doggy, uh, the regular infantry. We wanted to go with that, and so we started making a a big noise about we want this. We want to go with the with the lerps. And finally, a a sergeant and a captain came down uh, to talk to us, uh, and um, uh, we're all excited because you know we're getting to go where we might want to go. And and they said, well, you're going to have to do a course. Now we're just off of that eight week course. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, 10 hours over 12, 12 days, uh, one ration a day. We're just off of this course and we're thinking we don't need another course. And finally I said, so how long is this course? And then they said, well, it's three weeks, three weeks. Oh, hell, that's, that's nothing. Uh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much sleep do we get? And they looked at me funny cause they hadn't done the ranger course. Uh, and they said, well, six hours a night easily. What? You mean six hours a night? Oh, come on. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How much food do we get? And he said, and now he's really looking weird at us. He says, uh, three meals a day. Three meals a day? Point us at this course. Let's go. Let's go. And so we got on the on the on that course, uh, um, the, the whole bunch of us. Uh, and I ended up uh, the top candidate uh, at the end of it and got a really nice letter from uh, uh, from the commandant. 
Oh, wow. So, well, where where are you, like, when you, you land and then take this bus? Where do you go? Well, um, um, the airfield there is at, at Benoit, and uh, they took us to uh, Chulai is where we uh, did the course. Um, and um, myself and several others ended up going on up to, they separated some of us out there. They needed uh, people all over. Uh, and a small group of us ended up going up to Den- to uh, Da Nang, mm-hmm. and uh, we joined the various um, uh, LERP um, teams that were there. Um, uh, myself and two others uh, were put on Ranger Team uh, Miami, um, and uh, there was Frankfurt, uh, there was Moscow, there were several other uh, teams. They all were given uh, names like that, and uh, that the guys went all went to. Who, uh, when you're going out there and I guess throughout all your training, do you have any people that you're, you're kind of with throughout all of that? Any good friends? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and of course we stayed in touch with the other teams as well, cause they were all right there with us. Uh, but they would go out to different, uh, objectives and, and whatnot. But, uh, uh, speaking of that, uh, just about, uh, four weeks ago, middle of September, five weeks, I guess now, um, I was down in Niagara at a, uh, a U.S. Army Ranger reunion. Uh, and those of us that were actually Ranger qualified uh, on these teams uh, uh, were there. So I met uh, I met uh, folks that I had patrolled with 50 years ago. I couldn't believe it was 50 years. Uh, and we, we could still recognize each other, although um, at, least, at least they changed. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Well, that's quite interesting how you, you, yeah, you can still recognize someone from that, that long ago, especially, well, back then, I imagine with the, uh, the little amount of food you were eating and then coming off that, that course, you know, you guys are probably looked a little different, I'd imagine. But, um, so you go out to Da Nang and you join this Ranger team, Miami. Uh, what, what happens after that point? Well, we uh, we went on a, a variety of uh, patrols. Uh, some of them would last, um, well, maybe six hours. Others would last, uh, well, nearly 30 days. So it, it just depended on the area uh, that you were going to go into and what you had to do there uh, would depend on the length. So you just prep for that. You go out and do a, um, a visual recon and... Um, uh, with helicopters, and then you'd uh, meet your um, your helicopters at the at the pickup point. Uh, they take you up and they insert you, and then you spend uh, several days just sneaking and peeking through the through the bush um, until um, until it was time to come out, and then you get picked up and, and brought out again. So, is your main function while you're there? Is it to gather intelligence? Would that be like the first and foremost, or is it to go up? Go look for bad guys. We were in such small teams that we couldn't hold off. Uh, they figured we could hold off a platoon-sized element for about 45 minutes. Uh, and so we weren't there looking for a fight. Um, we were there looking for it and uh, and uh, avoid a fight as much as we could. Now, there were teams there that, that got wiped out, uh, that they hit, a, they hit a bigger force, and that they, they simply got overwhelmed. And uh, they were waked out before they could get uh, artillery or gunships in there to, to help them. They just 
the radio went dead and they were never, ever heard of again. Wow. And when you were there, were you leading this uh, Ranger Team Miami or do you have a specific function within the team? Um, I was there um, as they referred to me as, as the chief scout. Uh, so I walked point a lot, that sort of stuff. And I was also uh, sniper qualified. So uh, I often carried my sniper rifle with me and, and would do, uh, you know, if there was a long range shot that we could afford to take, uh, then we would, uh, they would do that. I didn't lead a team until uh, um, they stood the Rangers down and I went to Echo Company and Reconnaissance and, and ended up doing the exact same job. Uh, just a small team that uh, we would sneak and peek around and, and try to find the bad guys. Did, during any of these sneak and peeks, you know, did you get into any firefights with anyone or were you guys pretty well, like, did you come out almost untouched, nobody injured? Uh, no, there was, there was, there was folks injured. Um, Firefights were, were kind of nothing, nothing so much quite like that you, that you see on TV. Um, and there were sometimes there would be just a shot or two in the dark. Um, and, um, and, and the times they were, they were incredibly hairy. Uh, and we'd call in gunships and, and try to break contact as, uh, as quickly as we could. Uh, we weren't, we weren't there for, a, for a long fight. Uh, and, um, and we needed to uh, escape and evade to, to, to stay alive. Can you tell me what what's day to day life like when you're there? Um, well, when you're in in the rear area, uh, they would give you several days off, um, and you could sleep in. Uh, we lived in in um, what we called hooches. They were made of uh, plywood and two by fours. They had screening uh, just below the. Uh, uh, at the top of the wall and screening at the bottom of the wall to try to keep air moving through there. Uh, we would buy fans and stuff, and and, uh, and it was fairly comfortable. We had a half decent uh, bed there. Uh, we would hire uh, Vietnamese. Uh, we called them hooch maids, uh, and they would come in every day and uh, they would clean uh, clean the place up, uh, do our laundry, um, and they would do, they would do that out on a uh, at a um, oh, where where the fire hoses were, they would just turn on the water there and, and and beat them around. But they were clean, and and uh, we appreciated them uh, them doing that. They were always sad to leave us go. Of course, mm. we were a bit of a paycheck for them. Um, each each team had their own uh, their own hootsmates, and they paid them. Um, and uh, they were always glad to see us come back, and and uh, so it was kind of nice having that uh, when when we got home. Or got back, uh, and so you would you would get up and you, you, if you were just in off a mission, you'd probably just spend that day just trying to catch up on sleep and trying to um, trying to get relaxed. Um, and then you might go to a movie down at the USO Club. Uh, you'd go maybe go to a movie or or just go for a walk or you know whatever your whatever you and your buddies uh, feel like doing. And then you'd be that way for a couple of days, and then you would be then required to do some kind of rear, um, you know, Sergeant major type stuff. Um, I remember, uh, having to go off and fill sandbags down at the, at the beach, trying to, um, uh, what is it? The China, South China sea, mm-hmm. uh, down there on the beach sandbags and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and other, other tasks, uh, that evening you might be tasked to be duty NCO or something like that. Um, 
in the headquarters shed. Uh, and, and that would go on for maybe another two or three days, and then you'd get a mission. Uh, and so you'd have a couple of days to start prepping for that, uh, making sure that, uh, that all your kit is uh, sorted out, depending on what weapon you're going to be carrying that time, making sure that you had the right stuff in your, in your rucksack. Uh, and we'd be scheduled to, uh, to be on the, at the helipad at a certain hour. Uh, and we'd go do, down, we'd, uh, we'd be there and a chopper would come in and pick us up and, and take us out. Uh, leading up to that, of course, the, the patrol commander, the leader would, um, he'd get in what we called a, a low to light, no, um, light observation helicopter. Uh, and he'd go out and do uh, what we call a VR, a visual recon of where we were going, and he would pick a, a landing zone and that sort of stuff, uh, a couple of them, uh, so that he could uh, go to an alternate one if he if he needed one, if, if what we went into was hot. And uh, and he'd make all his plans, and, and he'd brief us on it, and if there was any special stuff that we needed to rehearse, then we'd do that during that time as well. Um, and then at the designated time, we'd be on helicopters heading out to uh, to our drop-off point. Um, and um, everybody would uh, would be keen and, and, and incredibly alert because you never knew for sure whether you're going into a hot LZ or not. And um, oh, I forgot forgot where I was going with it. Um, Just saying that. Oh yeah, the LZ and. Of course, you didn't want to. You didn't want the helicopters lingering around very much. So we stood on the on the the skid, uh, holding ourselves in place with the with the door jam. Uh, and as soon as that thing got to six feet from the ground, we would just jump off. Uh, you know, and you dash two or three steps, and then uh, and then go to ground, uh, waiting, listening for any shots that were coming your way or anything like that. The choppers would immediately take off. They weren't they weren't in position. Uh, six seconds. Uh, everybody was off, and uh, and they were gone. Uh, and that was good because now, of course, we can hear things. Everything goes quiet. We sit uh, we sit in place for just a few minutes, uh, just to just to listen, uh, to see what what we might get into. And then the team leader would uh, would get our attention, and we'd all head off in in a direction. It didn't matter what direction. Um, and then uh, we'd go maybe two three hundred meters, uh, and then we'd go go into all around defense. Um, and then that's where he would get his bearings and, uh, and, uh, start figuring out, uh, what were, uh, where he needed to go in accordance with the, the mission. The mission was oftentimes, um, three grid squares square. So nine grid squares. Uh, and, uh, we, the whole idea was to try to walk through all of those patrol through them all, or at least, uh, observe, uh, some of them, because some of them were wide open and, and we didn't walk through them, but we could observe what was uh, any activity. Um, and, uh, and so three or four days later, maybe five, uh, we'd be at the other end of, uh, of this, uh, our AO, our area of operation. And, um, uh, and he'd have already planned on a pickup uh, point. And, uh, so he'd be calling in then, um, that, uh, you know, that is, he's going with plan. And um, and we'd be there, and the choppers would come in. There'd be there'd be gunships uh, circling around us. Call them snakes because they were the Cobra gunship, mm-hmm. and uh, they're always a, a comfort to have on station there because they could react so quickly. And we'd get on the chopper, we'd uh, fly back in, and um, sometimes you weren't in there just a couple of days, and they'd have another mission for you, and you're putting your kit back together uh, and and going again. 
and sometimes you might be in there two weeks, um, and a, and a patrol might last thirty days. Uh, I re- remember the one thirty days we were in the same clothes for the entire time. Uh, wow! When you when you eventually got to take your clothes off, they'd stand up by themselves. They're so, <laughs> so saturated with dirt because you spent a lot of time, you know, on the ground, uh, especially at night, and uh, and and sweat. And of course, sometimes it would it would rain on you. And, and uh, that was sometimes a relief, uh, the rain. Do you, How many guys were you inserting with when you were landing? It varied. I think the smallest team we had was four. Uh, and we did go in with what we called a heavy. Uh, and that would be two of the regular teams uh, linked together. And so you might have about uh, 10, uh, maybe 12 guys in a heavy team. Still doesn't sound like enough. I still think, uh, where's the other thousand people behind us coming? But uh, what you're talking about, like filling in the rucksack and uh, being in there for a number of days, what are you bringing with you? And what kind of equipment do you carry? And, and then you kind of mentioned the the weapon systems. So depending on the mission, I guess the gear would be picked based on that. Yeah, uh, we figured our rucksack weighed 80 pounds. And if you were tasked to carry the radio, then it was 100 pounds. Uh, and I just shake my head at the thoughts of that nowadays. How could you possibly carry that? And then the guys that were in Afghanistan, my God, they, they all wore uh, body armor on top of all of that sort of stuff. We never wore any body armor at all. We Sometimes we carried our, our helmet with us because uh, some, somebody higher up wanted us to have that, but we, we never wore it. Um, and so in that rucksack, um, let's see, uh, the biggest weight was uh, food and water. Uh, I carried a five-quart uh, bladder uh, in my rucksack uh, as extra water, and then I carried a one-quart canteen on my belt. Um, and we've gone through that um, on on several times. We'd have to resupply out of out of the the streams and whatnot there, and and we put iodine tablets in it and whatnot. I recall refilling a canteen, and I had to push this orange scum back off of the water um, in order to fill the canteen. I put extra iodine tablets in at that time. <laughs> oh. uh, we would break down our rations so that we'd minimize the weight and we wouldn't take extra stuff with us. Like, you know, something as, as small as a plastic spoon, you don't need one, a new one for every meal. And so uh, we get rid of that sort of stuff. Anything that, uh, that if there was a food in a can that we didn't like, then we wouldn't take that. And, you know, we just, Minimize, minimize everything we possibly could. Uh, we each carried a, uh, a belt of machine gun ammunition uh, for the pig gunner. Uh, each patrol had uh, at least somebody with an M60 machine gun. Um, the, um, I carried uh, 500 rounds of, um, of rifle ammunition, and uh, my team leader had a, a real... Um, um, he did not like snipers. Um, he, he thought that was a, uh, was a breakdown in his, uh, his team's firepower. Uh, and the only time that, uh, that he would let me carry a sniper rifle is if I carried the same amount of ammo, the same amount of 7.62 ammo as everybody else was carrying in 5.56, which was 500 rounds. Well, 500 uh, rounds is not light for anybody who doesn't know. Oh. Uh, that's, that alone is heavy. I couldn't imagine packing water and other things on top of that. And we still have a Claymore mine uh, to fit in there. Uh, and sometimes carry two of them that we could daisy chain together uh, with a bit of deck cord. Um, 
and hand grenades. Um, I had a, uh, on my belt, I carried 19 uh, mini grenades. Uh, they're about the size of a, uh, I don't know, golf ball, maybe a bit bigger than that. Um, they were, they were, um, they were good because you could carry 19 in that one quart, uh, uh, bottle or cover. Um, and, um, the, the bad guys didn't know, uh, didn't know that they were mini grenades and had a, had a, an effective kill radius of half of what the real grenade had. All they knew is that their that stuff was raining down on them and, and it was exploding, and some of it hurt. Uh, and so we carried lots of mini mini grenades with us. Uh, went through them a couple of times. Went through that nineteen pack there a couple of times because um, if you're being probed in the dark in the in your night defensive position, you don't you don't want to fire a shot uh, because the uh, the muzzle flash will give you away. Uh, but they don't know where the, the hand grenades come from. So we would throw lots of hand grenades to try to discourage them from trying to find us. So did you guys ever, and I've never heard anyone talk about this on any podcast I've listened to, but uh, do you ever come across any jungle predators or snakes? Is that a, a common thing? Um, yeah, I've got a couple of stories uh, about that. Um, just making sure we got, there we go. I'm just making sure my battery wasn't going to run down here. Oh. Um, my first experience uh, with a snake, uh, I happened to be uh, walking point, um, and uh, we came to a little clearing. Now, a little clearing means there's just no trees there, but the ferns are up to your up to your shoulders. You know, they're it's it's tough to walk through these. Point man generally walk uh, watches the far side of the clearing to see if there's any movement there. Slack man behind you generally. Uh, watches the, the ground immediately around you uh, and as we're moving along um uh we're, as we're moving forward i hear over my left shoulder the slack man go damn look at that and so i turned in his direction which was to my left to find that he was looking to my right and when i turned all the way around here's this python um it was it was just coil after coil of him all coiled up there with this great big head the size of your hand laying on one of the coils. Jeez. And, uh, uh, and so I, we took several steps back. Now, I, I, I was probably a, um, a couple of feet from stepping on him, uh, but it was rainy and cold, and I think he was rather, what's the word, lethargic, mm-hmm. and uh, wasn't keen to, to chew on us. Uh, but anyways, I said, get the LT up here and have a look, and the LT's coming up. And he goes, damn it, Canuck, you stopped this thing. Well, damn, shoot that thing. He says, <laughs> so I flicked the safety off my rifle. I'm going to shoot it. And the slack man says, no, no, I saw him first. Let me shoot it. Let me shoot it. So there we are arguing in the middle of the desert or in the middle of the jungle. Who's going to shoot this snake? So he eventually shot it. Uh, and then we took time to, uh, to take pictures. And I have a picture here of it. There's three of us that are standing one beside the other. And, um, uh, this snake, we set it up on, on their shoulders and the snake starts, you know, below the one guy's arm on the one side, goes across three sets of broad shoulders and, and almost to the ground on the other side. Uh, it was just a whole lot of snakes. Um, anyways, that, that was the first one. Uh, the second one, um, it was, it was a couple of months later again, and we're on this, this trail uh, into Elephant Valley that we're monitoring. Elephant Valley belonged to the uh, to the uh, Vietnamese, 
Uh, and so it was a pretty delicate place to be. And, and we're on the trail looking for signs and whatnot of activity. So as we're moving along and we're really alert, I think I see movement in a tree, uh, you know, about 50 meters ahead of us. And I pointed that out to the, to the um, team leader. And he says, keep an eye on that. He says, sometimes um, uh, the, uh, the Americans used to use uh, a bomb that was called a flutter by a flutter. Butter, no, flutter. Maybe it was butterfly bomb. Anyways, it was a big bomb that would burst, uh, air burst, and it would send out a whole bunch of little bomblets. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes these would get inverted uh, as they come through the jungles and then uh, wouldn't go off. Uh, and so the Viet Cong used to uh, use them. They'd suspend them uh, from a tripwire so that if you trip the tripwire, then the thing would uh, fall on its striker plate and uh, go off. They did the same thing with mortar rounds as well. So he's saying, watch, watch for that. Maybe that's what that is. And so as we got closer, I began to recognize that it's a snake. Uh, and he's got himself up in a tree. There's a, the tree grows up uh, with, tr- with tree uh, branches kind of coming off the, the tip of it, like a, like high branches. Yep. And uh, as he's watching, he's all curled up in that. Uh, and as he watches us, he, his head following us, and it comes to the branch, and he tucks his head back around so that he can continue to follow us on the other side of the branch and uh it's clearly a snake so i said hey sarge can i shoot the snake no you can't shoot the snake we're in enemy territory right here man we don't want to fire shots sarge there's shots going off all the time anyways and this will only be just one shot <laughs> and then, then he says one shot and i'm thinking okay i've got you now and i said yeah yeah just one shot uh and so the snake was about 15 feet or so in the air and uh, I had a real clear shot at his head, and I fired that one shot and blew its head apart. And this thing started to slither down the tree uh, and, and dangling this, this uh, headless thing coming down, dangling. And I reached in there and started to, I grabbed onto it and started to pull it out and pull it out and pull it out. This thing was a great big long. We think it was a cobra because it, uh, it had what looked like hood uh, at what was left of its neck there. And I pulled this great big ass cobra out of the out of the trees. I imagine you get bit by one of those, you're not getting saved. No, no, I don't think uh, I don't think they can get you out, out of there fast enough. I've talked to some of the guys on here about uh, deploying to the Middle East, and then they talk about you know the camel spiders and uh, the other kinds of things you find crawling around out there. Some snakes. So yeah, definitely, I'd be more afraid of that than the other than the actual people coming at me. Well. Uh, yes and no. Um, uh, my point, uh, got bit by a, a spider and, uh, his arm, uh, his hand, uh, swole up, you know, it's like you took a, a medical glove and, um, and blew it up. Mm-hmm. His hand looked like that. It was absolutely useless. We had a medevac him out and, uh, it took quite a while for that to uh, eventually heal, uh, for him and he got his, his hand back. So how did you find, uh, when you're over there, how did you find the the management leadership? Was everyone kind of good to deal with, or is it like the first guy you were mentioning? Kind of sounds like a movie character where they're just, you know, do as I say and shut up about the rest. Um, there was there were some absolutely outstanding people there. Uh, some of the higher ups, I'm not sure. Uh, they were there trying to get their ticket punched. I think uh, more than than actually leading it. Um. One of the uh, the leaders of it was uh, Ranger Team Moscow. Um, 
um, he was uh, abs- he was a legend. Uh, he was so revered. Everybody wanted to be on his team because he he had developed a, a sense, uh, a, a combat sense. He could he could predict what the bad guy was going to do. He could he just developed that sense. Um, he was such he was so revered that I remember uh, never speaking to him, never walking up to him and speaking to him because I never thought I was good enough to talk to him. Um, and uh, he was at the reunion here not long ago, this one that I spoke of earlier. Um, and, um, uh, we, we kind of locked eyes across the room a couple of times and, um, he wasn't going to come and talk to me. He was going to wait for me to come talk to him. And we were there a day before I finally had the nerve to go up and talk. This is 50 years later that I finally had the nerve to go up and talk to him. Well, his reputation was pretty good then. Oh, this, this man has done everything you can possibly imagine. Uh, we were all keen to be on his team. I never was on his team, but uh, um, one of the guys that were there that I went through the ranger school with uh, said that one time they were in their, their night defensive position. And of course, there's like five of them. So it's a very tiny little perimeter. And um, and uh, this guy says to everybody, put your rucksack on and start crawling in that direction. Do it now. And everybody's kind of wondering what's going on, but they put the rucksack on crawls. Uh, and they went about 50, 70 meters, and all of a sudden, where they had been uh, got lit up. Uh, the Viet Cong had found them, uh, knew right where they were, and uh, were sneaking in on them, and uh, and they, they fired them up. Uh, had they been there, he said, none of us would have survived had, had we stayed there. And that was kind of the the his vision of the future that this guy, this guy had. He did many, many tricks like that where... He just anticipated something was going to happen, and and yep, it happened just like he thought. He's got that sixth sense. That's right. Yeah. Can you? Now, oh, sorry. Go ahead. My team leader, if if I disliked anybody, um, and I spoke with a couple of the other guys at this last reunion, and we all felt the same. In fact, this legend said the same thing about about our team leader. Um, we didn't like him at all. He would. Um, um, he would fake uh, contacts out in the bush so that he could get out of the bush sooner. Um, he lied uh, on intelligence um, I- information. Um, he was just a, a hound dog. Um, uh, and and I wouldn't be, put it past him, um, a friend of ours, a friend of mine that, uh, that I was quite close with over there, he and I were talking about this. And uh, there was one time that uh, he, uh, he faked a contact and, and wanted us to go along with it. And we went along with it because we weren't real convinced that we were going to get out of it alive uh, if we didn't, uh, that uh, he was just going to shoot us. And, uh, and that, would, that would lend more credence to his story, to his lie. So we went along with it uh, until we got out and, uh, and left it there. Wow. That's, uh, you know, to be in a position where you think your own teammate or well, the leader of the team might actually even shoot you too some different characters they got get going in there. I, I couldn't imagine that nowadays. Um, he, one of the, one of our teammates there was a great big dumb dude from, uh, from uh, down South. Uh, and, uh, he led him around by the nose. Um, I'm sure had he told this guy to shoot us, this guy would have shot us. Uh, he was just that way. He thought, he thought that team leader was, was, uh, was sat on the right hand of God. Um, was this team leader at the reunion? He wasn't. No, 
no, he wasn't. In fact, I asked the question, and uh, nope, nobody had seen him. Apparently, he had come to reunion a couple of times, uh, but nobody had seen him uh, recently. Hmm. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what it's like sleeping in the jungle? So we were out on these missions, um, just kind of the environment, the atmosphere, kind of what you're thinking, or I imagine you can't really do much except just lay there. Um, that's yeah, that's about it. Uh, we would. Um, when it's starting to come on dark, we would go into a, a defensive position and uh, and eat our last meal, uh, eat supper, um, and put all that stuff away. And then as it got a little bit darker, we would sneak off to uh, another spot, maybe 100 meters away or something, uh, to get away from the smell of the food uh, and, uh, and go someplace where they maybe couldn't see us. Um, and um, we'd go in all around defense. Uh, with the radio would sit in the middle. Uh, our feet were almost all touching. And um, um, uh, the radio would get passed around. Uh, the two IC of the of the patrol would uh, uh, would designate uh, who's on radio watch and for how long. Uh, and then you'd pass the radio with a with a watch around and uh, and then you'd wake up the next guy and and they would go on radio watch and so on. And you just do that uh, all night long. Um, and, um, uh, until morning, until as soon as it started to break light, then everybody woke up and you just, you just, everybody sat still for, uh, you know, for maybe an hour or so, uh, while it got light, uh, just to, just to be ready in case, uh, they'd found out where you were during the night. Um, and then, um, you'd get, uh, uh, you'd have, you'd oftentimes just have breakfast right there. Uh, because your, your smell is already there, so there's no point in trying to hide anymore. Uh, and so you'd have breakfast there, then pack up your rucksack, and then you'd be on the march, uh, going wherever you're going. And it always took a long time to go where you needed to go because you walked so incredibly slow. Um, you were, uh, you were just alert the whole time. And, um, and you have, uh, you know, every hour or so, you just simply stop where you were, set your rucksack down, and just sit for a while. Uh, we call them listening halts, uh, but you're also just taking a bit of a break. Um, it was common. It was oftentimes 90 degrees at nine o'clock in the morning and uh, 120 by uh, by noontime, and so the the heat was on on you. I find it interesting how you're saying it. Like it's basically a game of inches. Like you're moving 100 meters, 50 meters, and and that's it. So yeah, it would definitely take you quite a while to get anywhere. Yeah, um, we used to. Um, uh, walk on trails as well, and of course, uh, whenever I mentioned this to anybody in the Canadian Army, they would they would uh, step back <laughs> and gasp in in disbelief that you'd actually walk on trails. But the alternative was to bust the jungle. Um, the the Viet Cong, and particularly the Viet Cong, they knew every trail there was in that jungle. Um, and if you're walking, you know, 50 meters over there, making a new trail. Well, number one is you're making a new trail, aren't you? Um, number two is they can hear you. And number three is they know exactly where you are. You're at the end of this new trail. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was, it was safer uh, to go into high alert mode and, and walk along the trails uh, slowly enough that, um, that you could, uh, uh, if there was somebody coming the other way, that you could see them before they saw you, uh, that sort of thing. We always had somebody walking drag, as we called it. Uh, and they were virtually walking backwards. They'd walk the whole patrol walking backwards to make sure that nobody snuck up on you from behind. Uh, and so we'd spend hours like that, just literally days 
uh, out there just doing that sort of thing. Uh, when it comes time to uh, to go to ground, then you'd go, you know, 90 degrees off of that trail, and you might go if you're if you're going to try to monitor the trail, you wouldn't go very far at all, but you'd go 100 meters or so off of that trail uh, to um, uh, to put in your night defensive position far enough away that if anybody used that trail at night, that they wouldn't just bump into you. Wow, that's pretty amazing all the things that you have to think of and consider just from the food to the noise, where you're walking, uh, what you're leaving behind. Uh, yeah, you definitely got to be on high alert and, and uh, for yourself too, right? Just the, the things you're doing that could get you killed. Uh, ab- absolutely. And, and smell, it was amazing uh, how much smell you could telegraph. Um, the the uh, Vietnamese tobacco we used to say smelled like dried dog shit. It was just horrible smelling stuff. And you could clearly uh, identify it from American tobacco. Uh, and so the guys never smoked uh, out on patrol because you can just, even yet, I still think of that. If I'm out hunting someplace and I smell cigarette smoke, I think back to, to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, one of the teams uh, moving along the trail suddenly got this whiff of Vietnamese tobacco. Uh, and so they stopped and backed off and called in artillery. Uh, and there was an ambush there waiting for them. Uh, and the only thing that, that, uh, uh, that they, they got out of it alive was the smell of that tobacco. But you could smell the difference between the Vietnamese and the Americans, uh, simply because of diet, um, and, um, and whatever else, body odor, that sort of stuff. Uh, you could smell the difference between, uh, between the two of them really so um when you're there and uh, i don't know how much of the stuff you keep uh, uh into now whether it's podcasts or, or reading the books but i think everything you see nowadays is about sog so do you guys have a maybe a healthy rivalry with them or is it uh kind of the same you know whether you're called one thing or another well interesting point um we had a, uh, a major uh, plaster. This is for John. John Plaster came here mm-hmm. um, a couple of years back. Um, uh, he was a rep for Savage Rifles. Uh, and Savage was doing a, a show and tell here. And uh, uh, I knew that he was with, uh, with the Green Beret. Uh, and I knew a lot of the, uh, read about the stuff that he did. And... Um, he he and his group were were sneaking and peeking uh, across the border. Uh, they weren't supposed to be there, but that's where they were. That's where they were sent, and so they were doing doing their sneaking and peeking um, on the other side of the border. Uh, when I was there, uh, we weren't allowed to do that anymore, uh, even uh, even on the quiet. Uh, and so I was doing the sneaking and peeking on this side of the border, in the Vietnamese side of the border. So we were doing uh, virtually the same job. Um, and a lot of the, uh, the same skills, uh, we were all taught the same skills because they were the best ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was some fun, uh, when major plaster and I sat down for lunch, we started swapping war stories and the whole room just went quiet, uh, and listened to us, uh, listen to us talking. But I've seen, I've seen his books and yeah, they, they're, they were in Cambodia, I believe it was, it was yep. a bunch of his stuff. Laos too, I think. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, he would be a, uh, an amazing person to talk with. And uh, so you guys basically, because you were saying it, it was wrapping up, 
and the Americans were trying to pull out of that area. So yeah, you just weren't over the border essentially, but same kind of deal for you. Yeah, it was yeah, it was the same kind of exactly the same sort of stuff. We were we were trying to keep the uh, the enemy at bay uh, far enough out that uh, they were uh, outside of rocket distance for the uh, air base there at Da Nang. Because uh, that was uh, where the uh, Americans were going to going to pull out of. That's where I flew out of as well. And um, so we were out there sneaking and peeking, doing that sort of thing. And, and um, yeah, uh, anytime we could we could see anything, we would uh, call artillery in on it or gunships on it. Uh, try to minimize the, uh, the any kind of signature that we might give off, and uh, and just sneak and peek, stay out of trouble. Did you make it out of there uh, without any major injuries? Um, I was wounded on the 27th, 25th of February, my daughter's birthday, um, in 71. And um, that was my last, that was my last uh, patrol. In fact, I was already short. That eight months had, had, uh, had expired and I didn't have to go out on that last patrol. But I've been with these guys for so long. Uh, that I was, I was going to go. Out. We were out for about two weeks, I think, maybe two or three weeks. Um, and this, and this all happened uh, near the end. Uh, I ended up uh, losing one guy, and five of us, uh, five of us were wounded. Uh, a couple fairly bad, and, and myself and a couple others, uh, virtually nice souvenir wounds. That we can talk about. Can you tell us about that mission at all? Um, the. Um, Let's see. Uh, I, this was with uh, Echo Company, second and first. So we had a platoon-sized element. There was two teams and a headquarters element. Uh, I was tasked to take my team up um, a river and um, and just just check it out, both sides, just looking for signs, just sneak and peek along the edge of the river, uh, just looking for activity, uh, tracks and whatnot, uh, and, and radioing back any inch that, uh, that we could find. And um, I was to go up. Uh, three kilometers up it and then come back and they wanted me to come back the same route in case uh, um, activity had happened after we'd gone through. So we were probably 400 meters from uh, the headquarters uh, on our way back and um, we were on the south side of the river. Uh, The river in places was fairly narrow other places it ran fairly deep um, and um, uh, all of a sudden, I hear firing going on about 400 meters away, which is where our headquarters element would be. And the uh, the platoon uh, commander came on the horn and said, "We have enemy on uh, on the south side of the river, uh, right across from us. Uh, uh, where are you? Uh, and let us know uh, when you're safe, because they they didn't know where exactly where we were. We could have been on the south side of the river, coming across right there. Mm-hmm. And I said, "We're on the side. We're about 400 meters from you. Uh, I need uh, about uh, three minutes." And I'll be on the north side, uh, and so I got everybody across uh, to the north side. We would we would then set up uh, as a bit of an ambush or blocking force if anything came down uh, the river from uh, from them. Uh, and so we're in we're in position, and um, I'm just I'm just figuring out now. I want I want the guys up onto uh, the higher the river had kind of like two levels of bank, and we're on the lower level, so we're only about two feet from the water. And then right to our back, um, there there was another bank that went up about ten feet or so. Uh, so I sent the, 
the point man and the slack man up there just to make sure that we weren't going to walk into something. Uh, and while we're waiting for them just to check it out, um, the, um, uh, we noticed that the gunships were now on station and, um, um, and they were coming, uh, they were, they would come straight at us. Uh, they were, they were hosing down the south side of the river. We are now, uh, west of them that, uh, yeah, west, of, west of them. Um, and, um, and, and they're, they're coming, uh, just straight towards us, but, uh, but of course firing 400 meters short of us. And we'd always been told in, on the ranger school and then every, everywhere else, don't ever call in gunships. Uh, to come uh, towards you or away from you because you want them moving uh, perpendicular to you uh, because it's easier for them to, to fire something long or short than it is wide. Uh, and so these guys are firing, you know, straight towards us, but 400 short. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, when the gunship made the first run, I got everybody to just sit quiet. Don't let them see any movement uh, until they do their gun run. And when they sweep out to do the gun run, They'll, they'll disappear up through the, uh, the river channel through the jungle there because it was thick jungle on both sides. Uh, and as soon as they disappear, then we'll, we'll get up uh, on top there where, where the other two guys are. Well, so that happened, and I got a couple of guys up, and, and on the next run, the, the, gun, the gunnies never they didn't disappear. They did such a tight circuit that they stayed in visual the whole time, and they came right back down in. Uh, like it, it took them maybe 15 seconds to do that circuit and they were, they were firing again. Um, so I'm trying to decide, uh, I got to do something here. Uh, do we risk the movement and they might shoot out, shoot at us. We got to get the guys out of here. Uh, and just as, as I'm saying that I look back uh, down the patrol and I'm starting to tell them what to do. And the RTO who is a relatively new guy, he's looking out past my shoulder and he says, you better get down Canuck. And I look back, and here's three uh, uh, 2.75-inch rockets uh, coming straight at us. They leave a little black uh, black trail with when they fly. And my immediate thought was uh, water snakes coming through the water. That's exactly what it looked like, is these three things coming straight at us. Um, I threw myself up against a big rock that just happened to be there just as they landed. Um, and they all landed within, with, within the area of this living room that I'm sitting in. Um, and, uh, I immediately start thinking, I don't feel like I'm hit anywhere. And I look back and, uh, and Howie is, uh, is, um, is stumbling. He's, he's losing his balance. He's going down. Buck is already in the water, uh, and he's taking water and splashing it on his face. Um, um, who else was there? Um, and then I'm thinking, well, what about the two guys that were up on the, up there on the riverbank and I hollered out their name and they come tumbling down the side of that. Uh, it reminded me back in my days when I was uh, a kid and uh, we'd go to these sand dunes and you'd jump off the top of the sand dune and come slithering down. And they're both saying, we're hit, we're hit, we're hit. And I'm thinking, geez, you can't be hit too bad the way you're coming down. <laughs> uh, turned out that, uh, that uh, big George Santigo um, was hit in the fleshy part of the leg and my two IC Pelico Nelson um, he was, uh, he was complaining of his back. He said, my back just hurt so bad. And I had a quick look and I couldn't see any blood or anything. Uh, but now I had, I had to deal with these, these other people. So I figured he's, he's alive and, and can move. So I sent some people to the other side of the river to, to act as a blocking force that weren't hit. Two new guys, in fact. 
uh, and I sent the rest of the guys that could do anything out onto a little island in the middle of the river uh, to start breaking brush because that was the only place we could get medevac. Um, the doc uh, was working. Um, he, he checked out Buck, and he was working on Howie, and he looked up at me, and he said, he's gone, Canuck. There's nothing I can do for him. He's gone. Uh, and so, uh, the guys are now getting, I'm talking on the radio, getting, getting medevac coming in and talking to hire and all this sort of stuff. So just all kinds of things are happening. And then I realized everybody else has gone to the other side. Uh, and, and Howie, uh, who's clearly dead now, um, is, is here and his, him and I and the doc, uh, and the doc is favoring one of his arms. Um, and so I grabbed onto Howie underneath his armpit and, uh, and started to take him across the river uh but that first little bit of river and it was probably 20 meters wide was uh it was deep up to your armpit and the current was moving fairly quickly right there uh and we just started and the doc let uh, i was holding it on under his armpits and the doc was holding his legs and but i noticed the doc was only holding his legs with one arm uh and he and suddenly he let him go and a current just grabbed howie's legs and just whipped him downstream and i'm fighting the current thinking there's no way I'm going to let Howie go. I, there's no way mm. I got, I got to hang on, got to hang on to him. And so I inched my sidestep, um, across this until I finally got to the other side. Uh, and I'm dragging him up, uh, into the shallower water and, you know, a bit at a time. And I'm just exhausted from, from fighting that current. Uh, and I, and I sat down and the next thing I noticed, there's a big hand on my shoulder and it was big George Santigo. And uh, he says, we got him now, Canuck. We got him now. And so they dragged him up uh, on the beach. And by that time, we had medevac in and we got him out of there. We put Buck on the same, uh, the same horn. Buck was shot in, hit in both, uh, both legs and the shoulder, I think. Um, and, um, um, bench, and so we got them out on the first medevac. I called for another medevac and, uh, we were going to put, uh, George Santigo. He had a nice souvenir wound through the fleshy part of his leg, through the thigh of his leg. Uh, he was still walking around and, and doing things for us. Um, and um, who was the other one? I, I Oh, the doc walked by me. And the doc um, was holding his arm. And his his face was as white as snow. And I said, doc, we've got to look at you. And he said, no, no, i got to go check out uh, uh, um, Jody. And I said, no, no, it's your turn, doc. Sit down here. Uh, and I looked at his, at his uh, shirt. And it was just like... Just like in the movies, there was a little hole in his shirt. And I put both fingers in there and gave it a rip. And there was nothing but pure white ivory bone showing. Wow. Uh, a piece of skull had got him right mid uh, his bicep, through the side there of his bicep, and cut this great big uh, furrow right through there, right down to the bone. Uh, I grabbed his, his own first aid dressing and put it on him and, and, and ordered him to sit down. Uh, and I went to look at, uh, at Jody. Uh, Jody was... Um, complaining about his back and i said, come on let's have a look and i pulled up his shirt uh i couldn't see anything there was no blood or anything uh but i noticed um this this indent in his web belt um and uh and i moved his web belt and there was a heat blister about the size of a dime right over top of his spine and what had happened is a piece of shrapnel hot hot shrapnel had hit his web belt uh, and, and didn't penetrate the web belt, but created uh, a heat blister on the other side. Mm. Uh, he comes to, to being paralyzed right there. Uh, anyways, we got them all medevac. Uh, Jody wouldn't wouldn't go out because uh, I was down to the two new guys. 
uh, and uh, myself and, and Jody. And Jody says, no, you need me. I'm staying. Now, come on. You get on the Sam helicopter. No, I'm staying. Okay, okay. Uh, so uh, he stayed with me in the field, and we got linked up with the with the higher headquarters, and and uh, and that was it. That was my last day in the bush. Well, what an experience! Right at the end of the the deployment, we're glad you made it out. That's uh, yeah, quite the event to end it all. They um, so when you come out of all of that, you are done your time there. You fly back to the U.S. and then. What happens? Uh, what are you going to from that? Because you end up doing a, a some time with the Canadian Army as well. Oh yeah, I spent twenty five years with the Canadian Army. Mm-hmm. So, what's the transition, or what happens after you come back to the U.S.? We came through uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. Fort Lewis, I think it was. Um, and uh, and I got my uh, my papers. I'm done. Uh, I got on an airplane and flew to uh, Detroit. Uh, my mother and my stepdad picked me up there, uh, and my stepdad, of course, had been had been in the Second World War. He was a waste gunner in the Second World War, and he and he tapped my my uh, Purple Heart and said, uh, "You didn't mention this to us, did you?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't have time, and uh, and so uh, went went to um, uh, went went home. Uh, spent uh, a few months just trying to recruit, and then decided that I wanted to go. I wanted to, to pursue this gunsmithing thing, and so there I had the GI Bill. I was eligible for that, and so I went down to um, to Golden, Colorado, and did the um, a two year uh, gunsmithing course down there on the GI Bill. And what what exactly is the GI Bill? Is it just kind of giving you some skills now that you're out? Yeah, it gives you money to go to university or trade school or anywhere. Uh, you know that that they recognize uh, in order to give you a trade, uh, getting the army. Okay. So I moved back to uh, to Michigan and uh, I gunsmith for Williams Gun Sight for uh, quite a while. But I was still uh, I still like loved my time in the army. But I wanted to I wanted to come back to Canada, and uh, and so uh, uh, I went up to London, Ontario, and uh, and joined the Canadian Army. Um. And uh, moved moved to Canada. Went to um, uh, where was it? Uh, out east, the base is closed down now. But it was in Nova Scotia. Did uh, basic training there. Uh, went to Gagetown. Uh, did uh, TQ three there. Um, they they and, put you uh, back through basic, even though you already have yeah. done quite a bit of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and they knew that, of course. They knew my record, and uh, it was it was kind of interesting. I was. I was, um, they call it the, um, course, the course leader for mm-hmm. the whole time in, uh, in Nova Scotia. Uh, and on a Friday, uh, they, uh, they'd be heading home to, uh, you know, for the weekend and they'd toss me the keys and say, you know, keep everybody safe and tell us, tell us what happened Monday morning. And so I was virtually in charge of that platoon for the, for that whole duration. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, it worked out really well. We ended up winning. You know, the, the worst thing that you could do there is is every week you had a, an inspection of your uh, quarters, which of course was a lot of people living in them. And so I organized that just like I, I organized the, the patrols in Vietnam and assigned tasks and everything. And we we were top the top platoon for the whole time that we were there because because uh, I was there to with experience mm-hmm. to organize things. Yeah, and. Uh, 
and the guys soon uh, platoon soon saw all of that happening and and we had benefits because we were we were the top uh platoon recruit platoon and that sort of stuff so the same thing happened when i went to gatestown uh for um cq3 um and um and i was in charge there as well as as the student i was in charge of them and uh, and that that all worked out the same then i was uh, a task to um to um golf company and um number two platoon as as a private soldier uh and that's where i met uh war officer cy clayton uh he was our platoon warrant there and uh I figure the, the the best leader I had had ever experienced. He was just an absolutely outstanding guy. I learned so much from him uh, just just by being led by him. Uh, I would every day I would see something about him and go oh, there. I want to remember that. I want to remember to do that. That that was good. He was just an outstanding individual. And even coming in with all the experience you had, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, if I had to go to combat with anybody that I ever met in the Canadian Army, he'd be he'd be the top of my list so what did uh what kind of missions uh, did you take on with the canadians well uh you have to remember that my time in the canadian army was a peacetime army mm-hmm. uh if i thought for a minute that college class that i did down in the states was boring uh a peacetime army with combat experience there's it's just mind-numbing <laughs> uh, there was uh and so i got involved with the rifle team as soon as i could one of the things that I had learned coming out of Vietnam was the fact that um, uh, you can never be too good a shot. Um, and um, the thing that I had noticed in the Canadian Army is they weren't taking marksmanship seriously at all. They would go through the the uh, the, the steps of it, but they, they weren't taking it seriously at all. When uh, again, when I was uh, a private soldier there, they'd march us to the uh, to the range, and. Um, um, they knew that I was uh, a half decent shot at that time and was, it was keen about shooting. Uh, and so they'd line us all up uh, and, and assign us a, a lane that we were going to shoot on for the PWT, the personal weapons test. Um, and as soon as I shot mine and I'd, I'd fall back, uh, I'd be, uh, the, the, the company sergeant major would come up to me with a handful of ammo and he says, uh, I'm shooting on lane such and such, uh, next relay here, you shoot for me. And so I'd go up and I'd shoot for the sergeant major. And then the platoon warrant would hand me his ammo, and the platoon commander would hand me his ammo, and I'd end up shooting through the uh, the PWT, you know, three, four, five times uh, for all these higher ups that uh, uh, either didn't know how to shoot or couldn't be bothered learning how to shoot or didn't want to shoot or didn't want to have to clean their rifle at the end of the day and that sort of stuff. Um, and so that was that I, I was incredibly turned off by uh, that approach, although I loved the shooting. Uh, but I, I eventually got onto a rifle team, uh, the, the unit rifle team, and I spent my entire summers, virtually every one of the 25 years except one, uh, I spent uh, the entire summer uh, shooting on rifle teams. I eventually, uh, I was just a, a, a team member, and then when I got some rank, uh, I was team captain and then got some experience. I was team coach, um, and uh, so I shot on every one of my own teams. Uh, with the challenge that uh, I want to be the worst shot on the team. Catch up, guys. <laughs> so, well, I guess that would be kind of one of the, the downfalls of you know people having nothing to do. They're not going to keep their skills up. Well, uh, as we're finding out, marksmanship is a 
a skill that you need to uh, keep on top of or you'll lose it. Um, and, uh, uh, and there's lots and lots of people who, uh, who thought at the time that uh, shooting wasn't important. Uh, artillery, uh, machine guns, uh, anti-tank weapons, all far more important than learning how to shoot your personal weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was, I, I eventually went through officer's training uh, and I was tasked to one RCR when they were in London. Um, I was a platoon commander for a short while and then I became 2IC of the recce platoon there uh, under Dan O'Connor. And uh, they, uh, they insisted on us going to uh, coffee break at uh, 10 o'clock. All the officers had to go to coffee break. And it was not a bad thing because you could link up with people uh, there uh, if you had business to do with them. Uh, but I would, I would promote and try to push um, marksmanship that it's not good enough in the Army. Uh, and to any of the senior officers that, that would listen, particularly the development of the, of the sniper section in recce platoon, uh, eventually I pissed the commanding officer off to the point where he looked at me and said, shut up, go write a service paper. Don't talk to me about this again. Mm-hmm. And, so, and that's what happened. And of course, I wrote that service paper and it eventually got published in the infantry journal. Um, but um, there was no improvement uh, on the marksmanship side of things. So you're like, even what you do now, you are in involved in training people on how to shoot a rifle. It was, did you develop anything while you were there or like you came in, you know, you had a, a sniper experience in Vietnam and then you come into the Canadian Army to make you go through all the basic stuff again. But did you go back through like a, a sniper school or did you um, have to kind of re-up on all your qualifications with them? And then did that lead to anything in the future? Because you're, you're saying that they didn't end up taking it seriously. Uh, at some point, did they ever listen to what you're saying? Um, no, they, they, they never did. The closest mm. I ever got when I was... Uh, when I was uh, OC of Recce in two RCR, um, I started to deploy uh, my the sniper section, and this is one of the few times that uh, that snipers actually got deployed on exercises. They were normally uh, sent out as just Recce deaths, um, and um, and but I was pushing it, and um, so during training uh, in um, uh, on the base there, company uh, company training, inner unit training. Uh, I would find out where one of the companies was doing a, a defensive position. I would go get permission from the company commander to deploy uh, snipers uh, against them. And uh, he would look rather nervous and say, well, yeah, okay, as long as you don't interfere with our training, yeah, no problem. Uh, and very shortly after that, you'd see him in his vehicle heading back to camp because uh, he knew he was going to be one of the prime targets. Uh, and so I, I would send a... Um, uh, a two-man sniper team out, and they'd have a radio with them. Uh, and they, uh, I would just give them the location of where the defensive position was. They had to find a position. So uh, when they were in position, they would contact me and let me know where they were. So I knew where they were. Um, and then we would just stand around and wait. And pretty soon, you'd hear this blank shot being fired away off in the distance. And then up in the radio would come, um, that, uh, that student commander that's standing beside you, uh, he's just been engaged. Uh, and I would turn warrant officer, his warrant officer, and I'd say, "Warrant, um, the LT here is in a. Uh, you just got covered in in uh, red mist and bone chips. Uh, the LT's dead. You need to do something about that." 
And he would just look at me like a deer in the, caught in the headlights because they had not ever experienced that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I call on the radio back to them and I said, okay, what range were you at? Did you have set on your elevation? Yeah, okay, that's what you have on for wind. Yeah, okay, uh, we'll call that a good hit. Uh, eventually, the company 2IC, who's now in charge because the company commander took off on him, uh, he'd come over to me and say, well, how do you deal with this? You know, we've never had to do this before. And I'd say, well, do you have notional artillery here? Do you playing with a notional artillery? Yeah. Uh, and you got an idea where the sniper came from? Yeah, that section down on that, that side over there said they came from that tops of trees out there. Okay. I said, then then obliterate that grid square. Yeah. Uh, with artillery. And, uh, and then as soon as you can, send a, a, a platoon, if you got a whole platoon, at least a section down that tree line down there to that top and see and see what you find. Well, that's what he ended up doing. And sure enough, a little while later, um, the um, the platoon comes back and, and in tow are my two snipers. Uh, the snipers had, had got out of there when the notional artillery went in, uh, but had came back such a good position. They had to come back. And of course, that's when the patrol nabbed them. So uh, good lessons learned there on both sides. So when you, when you look back, at both the Canadian and the U.S. Army and your experiences there. What do you find are the big differences between the two, just outside of like funding and all the other things? But when you talk about just the, maybe the quality of soldier at the time that you were in and leadership, uh, what would be some of the big differences that you noticed? I think the one big difference is that the American Army had, had lots of combat experience um, and and that they had people who were now involved in the training that had that combat experience. Um, the Canadian Army, when I was in the Canadian Army, of course, they didn't have any uh, combat experience at that time, um, and uh, and perhaps have changed somewhat uh, since then. But um, they the, the Canadian Army shot too many blanks, uh, and therefore they had a whole different uh, attitude about um, uh, about ambushes and and attacks and and defensive positions and all that sort of stuff because uh nobody ever died mm. and 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 you could shoot all the blanks you want and uh and nobody ever died you never killed anybody and uh and that's that's kind of a uh an important thing too um you got to have people who can do that who can actually kill people uh, and not be uh, affected by it to the point where they become uh useless uh so i think that was the biggest difference i noticed um uh, between them, uh, neither neither side uh, pursued marksmanship um, all that hard. Um, not the detailed stuff. Now snipers, on the other hand, you know they were they were heavily involved in the marksmanship, um, and uh, and they were good good shots and uh, and good people. Um, I, I really don't know what the Canadian Army like. I've been out of the Canadian Army now longer than I was in, so I really don't know what what they're uh, dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't like hearing in the news um you know about them them um what was it they they um they want to reflect the, uh, I don't the know. yeah the, they want to they want to be, be a reflection of our society mm-hmm. um and uh i don't think an army can can work that way at all i think an army needs to be an identity all of its own um you need to be uh you need to be thinking like a team you need to look like a team um, uh, you need to be able to trust each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're going to start letting people, you know, color their hair and, and, 
and wear whatever they want to wear and that sort of stuff. You got too many individuals to to make this into a team. It's got to be a team. Well, got to be a team that people want to be on. That's very similar to recruiting for a lot of different things, even police. Um, and I've had that discussion with uh, many people on here when we talk about the recruiting. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if people necessarily hold the same values nowadays. Um, and kind of realize just how dangerous the world is out there. Uh, and kind of like you're saying with this, the Canadian forces, they haven't had a ton of, a, uh, maybe at like that time when you were there, they didn't have a ton of uh, experience in combat. But even now, like I know Afghanistan has happened and we lost lots of people there. But since then, uh, we're usually on training missions and peacekeeping stuff. We kind of lose the edge and the hardness that some people do need to be in these jobs. And if they get put in a position where, you know, they got to defend others or themselves. Um, and I've seen this on the street here. You'll see people get into a fight and basically they just like, they have no self-preservation. It's very weird. It's almost like it's bred out of people. So, um, you know, there are real threats out there, whether it's local and you're just walking down the street and something happens to you or it's from the other side of the world. There's always somebody looking to do harm. Um, I think that's kind of missed in this whole recruiting strategy that we need some people with an edge to them, um, certain type of mentality to be in there. And it's not, it's not meant to be all, you know, smelling the roses here and, and walking through the nice fields. So meant to be tough and and harden you up so uh one of the one other question i have for you was uh and i won't keep you too too much longer um but you've i guess twice transitioned from military to civilian life how do you find that so you know the the americans had the gi bill and they kind of paid for you to have a trade but uh again you're you know you're not in combat and it's a lot slower and then going from even the Canadian military into civilian life. Um, can you kind of talk about those two transitions? Yeah, the interesting part about coming out of the American Army, of course, I came straight out of Vietnam. Um, I was home probably within uh, a week of, of, um, of my last patrol. and But I noticed right off uh, all the senses, your, your, your sense of smell, your sense of hearing, your sense of awareness were all elevated uh, while I was over there. And I remember uh, when I got home thinking that I'm starting to lose that. Oh, I don't want to lose that. I want to, I want that elevated. I want to be able to, to, to smell the, the smells I could smell before. I want to be able to recognize. I want to be alert on everything. But I was losing it all. I remember that I, went, I would go out rabbit hunting more oftener than I used to, hoping to maintain those senses. Mm-hmm. But the fact was that never shot back, and so therefore he didn't need those senses, uh, and eventually lost them. Uh, coming out of the coming out of the uh, Canadian Army, uh, I was incredibly fortunate at the time. I had uh, had already met Linda, uh, and Linda is uh, the capital B in our business. Uh, she comes from a business background. She understood how businesses uh, have to be uh, 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 developed. Um, I was interested in teaching marksmanship. We both wanted to have a large property that we could, you know, get lost on and certainly go shoot a shot on anytime we wanted to. Uh, and so I fell into that. She developed that. 
Um, and uh, I fell into that so so easily because here I was doing the exact same thing I'd been doing uh, in the Canadian Army, which was uh, trying to teach marksmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I got but the way I wanted to do it. Of course, Linda has tons of, of experience as well. She and I uh, teamed up on the national uh, sniper competitions and, and won the pairs there, I don't know, eight times or something, a bunch of times. We were always the, the pair to beat because uh, she's a good shot as well. And so she understood how to teach this stuff. And, and between the two of us, uh, we came up with, with these programs. And so we just launched right into those. Uh, and there I am teaching cops and, and uh, competition shooters the, the same thing that I was trying to teach uh, the soldiers in the, on the rifle teams, you know, how to fire a perfect shot. So I, I transitioned incredibly smoothly um, in both cases. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, yeah, Linda will be on the show. I think we got her book for November 9th. Yeah. It's on my schedule, but it's coming up in a, a couple of weeks here. So, and definitely looking forward to that. Um, is there anything else you think we missed? Anything else, uh, anything else you want to uh, kind of cover or go over? Um, thinking. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, Cyprus. Um, yeah, we did. We, I guess we didn't talk about Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you want to uh, kind of cover Cyprus? Well, Cyprus was, uh, I was there in, I think, 77. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was relatively uh, tame um, uh, in, in comparison. Uh, but, you know, th- there was still always a danger there. Um, I was uh, tasked one time, I was a corporal at the time, and I was tasked to lead a patrol, just a practice patrol. Uh, and uh, that particular patrol, the Turks, uh, stopped us going through their uh, lines, and and one of the Turks held a, a G3 in my ear for a little while until we could convince them who we were, uh, and get his Dubai, his officer over, and then everything got explained, and 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 he offered me a cigarette, which <laughs> which um, it was a joke in our battalion because everybody knew how how a religiously oriented non-smoker I was, uh, and here I was. Uh, uh, taking this cigarette from the Turk. Uh, and that was simply because I thought that now was not a time for me to to possibly offend him yes. by not taking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's extending the olive branch and this is, you're not in the position. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, we did a couple of, of sniper-type roles uh, there on Leisure Palace. Uh, when the Greeks and Turks were coming in to, uh, to do their talks, they often did them there at Leisure Palace. So um, a couple, our sniper sections were up on the on the rooftop there, just uh, monitoring, overlooking everything. How long were you there? Um, a long uh, six months. Six months. Yeah, it it was it was a better go than because uh, I was in recce platoon at the time, and it was a much better go than uh, than what the line guys were getting. Uh, they they stayed in one spot, and it was incredibly boring for them. Uh, but we patrol the uh, green line, um, and um, uh, and the patrol would last, you know, maybe four hours or something, and then you were off until the next time you had to patrol. And so you'd you'd laze around the the swimming pool there at the uh, at the Leader Palace, or you'd go work out in the gym. Um, you know, I was bench pressing four hundred pounds at the time, and uh, I had arms on me that that I had to roll up the sleeve of my shirt. Um, and then put the shirt on because I couldn't get it to roll up over top of my bicep. So we, we uh, that pretty cool in that respect. See, that's it. We don't have biceps. Fortunately, See, that, is that typical of a sniper? <laughs> well, I am. 
rifle weighed a lot. So mm. you might, it might have, it might have helped out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they're probably not like the rifles now where every, you know, lots of it's made of plastic and everything's about being lighter. Well, that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as it produces, uh, the C3s that we had, uh, they let me down more often uh, than not. We uh, shot them in competitions, um, and, uh, they wouldn't always stay zeroed and oh it was it was a mess i eventually got so tired of, of shooting them that i just quit and then i switched over to uh shooting the sniper matches for the dcra dominion canada rifle association where i could use my own rifle mm-hmm. um immediately i won i think eight uh, sniper championships and they were virtually all with the uh with my own rifle what was your main function in cyprus is it strictly keeping the peace over there yeah uh it was just it was just driving uh or monitoring each side so that if they were seen to be starting to uh, escalate something that you could get word down uh, to the higher ups as quickly as you could um um one of the things that we used to do there on these these patrols would be to stop us at a spot where we could overlook either one side or the other and we'd pay attention to uh the number of rows of sandbags in the, in that particular bunker uh we try to uh notice uh you know how many guys are there what kind of weapons they have um and who's in charge and, and uh, that sort of thing uh and then you know a few days later we'd come around on that same patrol we'd stop in the same place and uh and we'd compare notes uh is the same number of uh layers of sandbags oh wait there's an extra row they're not supposed to do that and so now we'd have something to report in uh, that they are improving their uh, their positions. Um, so that's kind of what, what we did. Um, oftentimes it was, um, it was, oh, I don't know, a bit, a bit on the silly side. You'd see a, uh, a shepherd herding a, a great big old uh, flock of uh, goats and sheep through a minefield. Um, and we'd get on the horn, you know, you know, what do you want us to do here? Are you going through a minefield? And by the time everybody would get in the know and a decision, we'd say, oh, never mind. He's through the minefield now and nothing <laughs> happened. So, were, you, uh, were you teamed up with any other forces, any other countries? Or is it just Canada there? Uh, in, or where you were? In Cyprus. No, but like, were you with any other militaries while you were there? Or was it just like where you were, it was just Canadian forces? It was just Canadian forces. Uh, you'd, see, uh, you'd see some Brits. Um, you know, driving by in some vehicle somewhere. Uh, seems to me there was uh, there was a Swede, there was some Swiss there. No, uh, Swedes were there as well. Um, I was part of a patrolling competition, and we had a uh, our umpire was a, was a Swede. Um, yeah, and uh, we went up to Decalia uh, one time. Uh, I drove uh, a link up there uh, because they the British were doing their NCO course uh, on the island, and they wanted to see uh, all the different weapons that the various contingents had. Uh, and so we took a, a length up there. We shot our uh, C5, um, and uh, I briefed them on the sniper rifle um, and, and somebody else uh, on the FN, that sort of stuff, just so that they kind of had a general knowledge of what we were using. It was a good go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. How um, how would you say all that's kind of prepared you for what you do now? Is that 
I guess the army's maybe given you a lot of the skills that transitioned into civilian life. And then, um, this is what's led you to doing your, your practice now. And I mean, all the awards and accolades and hall of fame, uh, they probably set you up pretty good in that direction. Yeah. And of course, Linda took advantage of that mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and played, uh, and played that of course, uh, very well. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the normal stuff that is taught in the army, particularly leadership, um, has been, has played very well. Um, being, uh, recognizing the need to be organized, uh, the need to be on time, uh, the need to know your topic, um, being able to stand in front of people and, and talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all of that, of course, uh, came out of the, came out of the army. Yeah. And you know what? I, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest benefits about going through uh, a paramilitary organization. Like I have, you've been the actual military, but it's all the things like attention to detail, yeah. uh, organization, you know, public speaking is probably a big one too, you know, being out there and, talking to people that you don't know. And, um, that's probably one of the biggest fears for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I don't find it a, a bit uncomfortable to, to get in front of people to talk about something that I'm not as familiar with as I am about shooting. Mm-hmm. I have no problem getting up anybody and talk to them about the, the marksmanship principles. Um, but if you were to ask me to get up and talk about the legal side of situational awareness, yeah. the legal side of anything, <laughs> That's familiar with that subject, and so, and I, and I understand the need for that, and therefore I recognize my shortcomings, and and don't want to do that unless I'm unless I'm been made familiar with it. Yeah, no, I mean you uh, definitely know your craft, and um, that's what you speak to. So, uh, but I think we're kind of at the end of our time here. I don't have any other questions, um, and I have to get going. It. Uh, to work so um but is there anything else uh, that you would like to to just make sure we get out there and i also want you to make sure you get a time to kind of plug your company and just uh, uh tell us people how they can follow you or take a course well uh we're on we're on the web um milton.com and uh and we do courses here all all summer long uh we schedule the course and so wanted to take the course you'd have to have to meet our schedule uh we do private courses as well whenever there's there's room available so if you wanted to to do something specific just one-on-one type of thing then we can do that um we can pretty much guarantee no matter what level of a marksman you're at we can pretty much guarantee that you'll leave here better than when you arrive um and uh and we do promote the the mental side of the game we think it's about 90 percent of the game and so we do we do uh, a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, and, um, and I mow the grass. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? And that's a big thing that Ben Click when he was on here. Um, and we talked to him about, and it's a lot of the mental stuff. So you got to focus on that. Yeah, I remember Ben on our rifle teams, and he, he grasped that uh, mental side of the game very, very well to his benefit. Great. Well, uh, we'll kind of end it there. Um, if you can hang on the line for just a second, I'll say by offline, but I'll uh, say thanks for coming on. We really appreciate the time and everything you've done for uh, everybody in this country. Thanks very much. 
enjoyed myself here with you. It was therapeutical. <laughs> Great. Okay, just hang on uh, for a second. <laughs> 